Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the CX Cast. This is Sam Stern, joined, as always, by Jenny Wise. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. And we are very excited to have on the line, all the way from Barcelona, a special guest joining us, Jeff Gotthelf. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Jenny and Sam. And what we wanted to talk with Jeff about today, and we'll actually make this a two-part episode, so we'll be talking more about these concepts next week as well, is his recent book called Sense and Respond that really gets into important concepts about how an organization will work differently, will act differently, when it is truly, authentically interested in collecting customer insights and feedback on a continuous basis and using the interaction with new products and services from customers to learn continuously and improve those products and services continuously. I think there's a really good lessons in here from Jeff on both how you would do that type of a process of the continuous research and the continuous learning and how you would help employees start to work differently. So we'll cover both of those topics in our two episodes. I'm interested in getting your origin story, your backstory, and why did you write this? My co-author, Jeff Seid, and I wrote the book Lean UX together, and it was a very practical, tactical book for designers and software product development teams about how to do user-centric product development, user-centric design, how to infuse customer experience into the agile ways of working. Now, the book was surprisingly successful, really. I mean, it's one of those things where you're kind of blown away by the response, which is fantastic. And over the years, it's been six, six and a half years now since Lean UX came out, the feedback, while overwhelming, has had one key theme to it that bubbled up, which was, I would love to work this way, but my boss won't let me work this way. And, and to us, that was a signal from the marketplace to see if we can have a conversation with the bosses to alert them to the fact that there are new ways of working, that the teams that they're managing already want to work this way. Here's why it's important, basically, and what you need to do to support this ways of working. And so that was the impetus for writing Sense and Response. The other thing was it was a personal challenge for Josh and myself to write a business book. We were designers. And for us to prove the impact that we could potentially have in the business world was a personal goal as well. We know how important design is and working in a way that can foster design thinking and ideation and customer feedback and the sensing that you mentioned. But you do often need to make the case that this is business relevant as well. And one of the things that you do point out in the book is, you know, in addition to designers needing this case to be made so that they can do the work that they need and product developers, there's also other outside factors in the market impacting how people come up with products and the type of products that they're working on. The world that organizations are dealing with today is radically different than the world of even 10 years ago. Fundamentally speaking, software has consumed the world, right? So Mark Andreessen famously said mm-hmm. back in 2011, software is eating the world. I think at this point, 2019, software has eaten the world. There are tremendous uh, implications of this, both risks and benefits, right? So the yeah. risks are the reduced barriers to entry. You can build really any kind of business today in the kind of time frames that would have taken a lifetime 20, 30, 40 years ago. Take, for example, banking, right? You want to start a bank. That seems like a monumental task 15 years ago. Today, you're seeing competitive banks being started much more quickly and much more easily thanks to technology. One of the benefits is that organizations can use the modern nature of technology. So technology today is continuous, right? You don't go to the store and buy a box of software. You get 
software just shows up. It shows up in the browsers. It shows up on our devices and so forth. That continuous nature allows us to build a continuous conversation with our customers. As fast as we can get ideas into market, that's as fast as we can be learning if we're meeting customer expectations or not. And that is, is a fundamentally different way to think about product development. No one's going to sit around and wait a year and a half for you to get your thing done and then uh, and then buy a bunch of those things from you, right? They, they expect to see early and frequent iterations on these ideas on an ongoing basis. Those iterations should be responses to how customers are behaving when they use your systems. That's great. I love that. So instead of thinking to go out Back in the day when you'd want like a Windows update and you go out and you buy the CD to update it, um, you can just ship an update in your computer in real time, right? And so that changes what a product is and means and is defined as, and then also how companies should expect to work. When we talk about product, product can mean different things to different people. It can be a physical product that you're shipping. It can mean software. So I'm just curious, in the course of this research or when we're talking about products and product innovation, what is the, I guess, the definition of product or how broad does product go in its meaning? It is the way an organization delivers and captures value. Because sometimes your product just is a service. Like if you think about right. Airbnb, that was just a service until they started rolling out hotels now, which are physical products. So yeah, they yeah. can be one and the same. Well, and I think that what you're getting at too with delivers and captures encapsulates a lot mm-hmm. of those ways of, you know, there's often latent value or un, sort of tapped value in the, the car that's sitting idle in your driveway or the house or the room in your house that's idle, right? And so it's sort of the capturing part. I love that. It's a really important word within that definition. So let's dive into the book a little bit, starting with the title, Sense and Respond. Sense and Respond is the way for us to describe this continuous conversation that you now have the responsibility of taking on as a modern business. I think it's irresponsible for organizations not to sense and respond to what's happening in the marketplace in real time, in market time. We just don't have the luxury of dictating to our customers what they should buy, where they should shop, how much they should pay for things. There's just too much competition and there's too much change. And so the idea behind Sense and Respond is we increase the agility of our organizations, right? Many organizations hire the process agile, right, with a capital A mm-hmm. to try to increase their ability to react to market forces. Sense and Respond is designed to really take the dogma out of that conversation and speak to how do you build a learning organization? An organization that values what your customers are doing, how that impacts your business, and then reciprocates that by creating the kind of culture that allows the teams who work on those products to respond to improve the service so that the customer experience continues to get better and better and better. You use the word responsibility and and that it's irresponsible if you don't do this in the book. And and you can maybe expand on this example. But I was really struck by the Nespresso example with Tom Peters, who's sort of, you know, the the management uh, guru being frustrated with a gift that he'd he'd given trying to register it, I think was the story. And their desperate attempt on Twitter to maybe try and resolve his issue. But just the fact that it's irresponsible if you don't take his feedback and address it and fix it for the the next person, the next famous person with a Twitter following who might have an angry tweet storm, which to me sort of encapsulates what you're getting at. To Nespresso's credit, they're sensing. They're paying attention to customer feedback through where customers are today, which in, this, in, in a B2C world, that is Twitter and Facebook and wherever else, right? Pinterest, I suppose. The mistake here is that they are responsible 
responding in those rigid corporate ways. They weren't truly listening. They sensed that someone needed some help, but they were unable to create the kind of customer experience that mimics the delight of actually using their product. I love my coffee machine. I would expect that every interaction I have with that organization mimics the delight of using their product. And in this particular case, they built the feedback loop. The sensing part worked well, but the response part broke down. They were not able to solve the problem in a meaningful way for that particular customer, and he managed to name and shame them publicly on the internet. Unfortunate for them. Okay, great. I think that's a really nice distillation of what happens when you're doing one and not the other. So look, if you're doing the sensing without the responding, that's relatively common. People will say, well, we work on this for 18 months, and we launched it, and now no one's using it. So we're going to work on something else. The other way happens a lot too in, in that many organizations don't do the sensing part, which is especially with the technology driving businesses today. I, I cannot understand how a company is not instrumenting all of their software, all of their digital products and services to deliver these analytics. But certainly these organizations are responding. They might not be responding to actual usage, quantitative and qualitative feedback. They might be responding to somebody like a Tom Peters, you know, pooping on them publicly. I worked with a bank once where the only thing the executives cared about in that bank was what people said in the app store reviews. The teams who were building these apps would scream and shout and say, this is a bad idea, we shouldn't do it, and the executives would ignore all of that. Only when the reviews came out in the app store would they then respond to that. And so I think I think organizations are doing one or the other quite often. And in both cases, it's a it's a broken process that delivers a suboptimal customer experience. So it sounds like one thing that needs to be worked on before you can even get to the respond is the sensing, right? Sort of who should be doing this sensing. And then also, if you want to roll out this new way of working, which is this sense and respond and continuous learning, what are the implications in how companies approach their work, right? What is it that needs to change from what they're doing today? The fundamental way that I've seen organizations embrace this way of thinking and ultimately this way of working is by starting the process differently. Instead of giving their teams a solution to implement, these organizations reframe the work as a problem to solve. It's a fundamentally different way of asking a team to do their job. Let me illustrate it with the simplest example that I have. Let's say you work on a team and the name of that team is the iPhone app team, right? What's the mission of that team? Like what what are they done? I'm, I'm raising my hand. You can't see it. But, uh, they, they build an iPhone app, it sounds like. Exactly right. Now, take that same exact group of people, and instead of calling them the iPhone app team, you call them the mobile commerce team. What we've fundamentally done there is we have reframed the mission of that team from a solution to implement, build me an app, to drive up mobile commerce. The measure of success for the mobile commerce team is an increase in mobile commerce. And there is an infinite number of combinations for how to do that. You can build an iPhone app. You can build an Android app. You can put beacons in the store. You can do geofenced SMS alerts when somebody walks by a physical location or a place where they can buy something from you. We can go on and on and on and on. How do we know which one of those ideas will drive mobile commerce up? And I'll give you the answer. The answer is we don't. We have our best guesses. 
But at the end of the day, the measure of success is not did you ship geofenced SMS alerts, it mm-hmm. did you drive mobile commerce. And so the teams who are given problems to solve are forced to sense and respond to which ideas actually solve the problem they were given as a team. That also ties into you know, when you're thinking about how to solution and ask the right questions and start from a customer-centric point of view, right? You never want to start with the technology, right? Or let's build an app or this is going to be the solution. And then you begin to think about, you know, have we shipped this feature and what feature are we going to work on next? Instead, it's much more, here's this larger objective, which in that example that you just gave was tying to a business objective. I'd imagine there are some other companies that even tie it to a customer objective, right? Go one step further to be a team who's working on a specific point in the customer journey. And then the question becomes, you know, how do we make sure that the customer is successful in researching life insurance? instead of, you know, how do I work on the mobile app? Yeah, exactly. Ultimately, that customer success is the business of success. If we think about mobile commerce, the reason why somebody is shopping with their mobile app is because it's easier for them, it's simpler, it's more convenient, it's more efficient, it's more delightful, whatever it is, right? And And so we're solving a problem for them, and then we're ultimately making the organization successful. The metric of success then becomes, did we help this customer achieve their goal and actually drive more commerce versus what future do we have in the app now? Which I think can lead into another question that we have here. And you mentioned this in the beginning and part of the reason why you wrote the book is not all organizations say, okay, great, let's change the way we work and do this new approach. And I'd imagine metrics are one of those things in the organization that can be a hurdle. What are some of the other reasons or ways that you see companies being resistant to this? fundamentally changes the leadership component. So think about it again, right? If I'm the stakeholder for a team or a set of teams and I say, go build the iPhone app, then, then I've told that team what to do. And as far as I'm concerned, that's my job. I tell people what to do, right? I'm, I'm the boss. Mm-hmm. Now, if we ask those bosses to reframe the work as a problem to solve, and then we tell the teams to go sense and respond their way to finding the best combination of code, copy, design, business model, value proposition, call to action to drive that outcome, we are asking the stakeholders to stop telling teams what to do, right. or at least what to build. Super scary for a lot of managers because they've been educated and, and mentored to tell teams what to do. And, and it feels like when we switch to this way of working, it feels like we're taking that responsibility away from them because we are. <laughs> they're, <laughs> right? they're sensing that correctly, in, in other words, right? <laughs> they are. They're right. We're asking them to change how they work. Now, their job is now to set strategic direction, present the problem to solve, and set success criteria and constraints for the team. Fundamentally um, conflict with what they know how to do and what they're typically asked to do. So that's that's one of the biggest resistance uh, things there. One of the ways that I have found to reduce the anxiety that this causes with stakeholders and leaders and managers is for the teams who are being asked to work in this new way to radically increase their transparency. The more actively transparent these teams can be by including the stakeholders in conversations, proactively sending them data that they're collecting, being very clear about the decisions that they're making and and the rationale behind those decisions, their expectations about what they'll be doing next, all of those things help reduce that anxiety 
and increase the likelihood of their stakeholders buying into this new way of working. That makes sense. You used an example in the the book, at least this is one of the ones that, that stood out to me about how the military has for a long time, actually longer than I had realized, had this approach, right, where they're not trying to dictate orders in the field, but at the same time, they're trying to set parameters or set guardrails that the soldiers and the groups of soldiers in the field know what to do, know the larger objectives, but also know they have the freedom to, I guess, sense and respond to what the enemy is doing, right? It's called Mission Command, and it was brilliantly laid out in a book called The Art of Action by uh, an author named Stephen Bungay. Basically, what you said is exactly right. The commanders in a battle situation set an objective for a team. Take that hill. Right? But beyond that, they let the teams figure out the best combination of tactics and approach to achieve the mission because inevitably any plan that they put forward, as they say, never survives first contact with the enemy. And so they have to sense and respond to what's happening in real time and adjust their tactics to achieve the outcome. And that's exactly what we're asking teams to do here. We're saying our objective is to drive up mobile commerce. Right? We think an iPhone app is the way to go, but if you discover along the way that it's not, feel free to change those tactics so that we can achieve that increase in mobile commerce that we're looking for. Eisenhower's quote that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable, right? Knowing that we're trying to increase mobile commerce, we're trying to engage customers in this way, very useful. But the specific plan of how we'll do it, as you said, rarely survives first contact with the enemy, rarely survives first, you know, beta version launch, right? That that version is, is just a starting point. You know you're going to iterate and adapt from there and, and sense and respond to the situation in the field. You see a lot of books on these topics, and interestingly enough, a lot of the, the really good books on this do come out of the military space. For example, David Marquette's Turn the Ship Around. He was the commander of a nuclear submarine in the Navy. Talked about how he rearranged the power structure in his submarine to drive the best results out of his crew, leaving very few decisions to himself as the as the captain of that sub. And again, a lot of this stuff does come out of the military realm. Yeah, one other, I, I always reference Team of Teams, uh, Stanley McChrystal, in, in sort of this subgenre of books by military people about how as leaders they've loosened their grip on the reins of control as a solution to being more reactive, more agile in the field. Great. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for walking us through some of those concepts. We'll have a second conversation here where we'll get more into how employees will need to work differently to make this sense and respond process happen. So listeners, we'll talk to you all next week about that topic. Thanks to our colleagues, Amanda Chen, for recording and mixing the episode, and Will Wilsey for editing and publishing. And listeners, if you have questions, feedback, comments, or suggestions for new episodes, please email us at cxcast at forrester.com. And remember, your customers' perceptions are your customer experience reality.